This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. My gosh, you boys already know I'm not letting that Ramsey boy come over and play until you clean up your rooms. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today's our huge National Work Harder Day celebration. I told Joe's mom it was her turn to work harder taking out the trash. I told OG he needs to do a better job at cleaning out my El Camino, and I worked harder than ever this year on planning our celebration. The highlight of it all, to protect all that hard work you do, today we'll share a cautionary tale about some huge con artists, Banks. Here to share the juicy details about a con bigger than Bernie Madoff, we welcome the author of Iceland's Secret, Jared Bibler. After headlines, we'll also throw out the Haven Lifeline to Deb with a question about high-yield fake-outs. What do you do when your bank baits you with a high rate and then lowers it? Then we'll have a trivia question you'll have to work harder to get right. And now, two guys who work hard for the money... So hard for it, honey, it's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. I love it when she writes you stuff that's difficult for you to do. <laughs> Just even sitting here watching you do that is fantastic. So hard for it, honey. <laughs> yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to 70s Music for the Win podcast. I'm Joe Salcihi, <laughs> Average Joe Money on Twitter and we got the band together today, uh, Mr. OG across from me, ready to celebrate another Wednesday. It's happening. How are you, dude? Happy Wednesday. It's another beautiful day in paradise. Yes. Mr. Doug with the coffee. Everybody's got caught. We're caffeinated. We're ready to go. Aloha. Hey, we got Jer Bibbler, as uh, Doug, you so eloquently said earlier, coming on. You know, uh, you do work hard for your money. You want to make sure that you don't lose it. And this was a huge scam. That a lot of people didn't hear about, knew nothing, still know nothing about in the United States. So we're going to dive into that. But before that, we've got a fantastic headline about one of these new state savings plans. How is that working out? Uh, We'll dive into the secret to saving more money. But first, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. 
Insure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. All right, time for us to, you want to sing it again, Doug? Um, no. <laughs> All right, let's, let's move. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's Headlines. Our headline today comes to us from Napa-Net, the uh, National Association of Plan Advisors. These are the people that handle pension plans and other savings plans. And I love their website. Ted Godbout wrote this piece about state auto IRA plans. A new study looks at the impact of the first state-sponsored auto IRA program and those who previously lacked access to a plan in auto enrollment retirement plans in Oregon saves authors John Chalmers with the University of Oregon Olivia Mitchell of the University of Pennsylvania and Jonathan Reuter of Boston College Mingli Zong of the Urban Institute analyzed participation choices inflow and outflow data between August 2018 and April 2020 and the evolution of account balances. So they dive into this thing. Before we get too far into this, OG, let's talk about what we're actually talking about. Oregon passed a law that created a brand new plan for people that don't have access to a 401k. So if you work for a small business, now small business owners can sign up, people can sign up so that they have very easy access to a state-sponsored plan. Oh, they already made one of these. It's called an IRA. Very easy to set up. But does your employer set you up in the IRA? Uh, no, does no. It, that would take a smidge of personal responsibility. D- does your employer actually look at the uh, investment options and choose a, f- a few investment options that might fit most of the people that work there? Are you suggesting that employers do that presently? <laughs> what do you mean? Because <laughs> they do not, in a fo- I assure you. In a 401k plan? Sure they do. God, no, not even close. I just had a client email me and say, hey, the simple plan provider told me to go on this website and select all the funds that were four star or higher. So she did. Oh boy. Figuring that would be a small list. It was 528. And she was like, I don't, what do I do with this? So I would argue that they don't. In fact, uh, most employers abdicate that responsibility to the provider legally. I think what you're trying to say then is that the state of Oregon was right at getting involved because employers aren't doing a good job of this. That's what you're trying oh, to say. Oh, yeah, because the government's way better at getting involved. <laughs> let's, let's do that. <laughs> so, so far, so good in government involvement. Let's, in, uh, let's dive in. in, in say, well, you like, the, you like the TSP. I don't not like it. <laughs> Wait, there's a rousing endorsement. <laughs> what is, what is I that? I don't pay? disagree that I do not like it. The TSP, yeah. low-fee program, well-managed. No, I understand what you're saying about the TSP being sponsored by the government, but it's not managed by the government. It's managed by BlackRock. They're the ones that put it together. So, okay, the TSP is awesome, but I'm guessing that the Oregon plan isn't TSP. That's my guess. We'll get into their success. The authors explain a key rationale offered to justify this type of plan, which OG clearly is in favor of is because the vast majority of workers lacking access to employer-sponsored retirement plans have no dedicated retirement savings vehicles, meaning the path, OG, from money in your wallet to an IRA, people aren't making the jump. And that's why uh, these authors say that this type of a plan is is warranted people to start saving. So here's the thing. You can tell your employer to direct deposit money anywhere, right? 
So why don't you have your money direct deposited into your Fidelity account so that you can put it in your IRA? Why, why do we have to create yet another product for people to get confused, yet another arrow in the quiver when these already exist? I mean, I understand the simplicity of having the money come out of your paycheck, right? It's, it's easier to do, out of sight, out of mind, all that sort of stuff, but you can create that on your own. You don't have to like have a government-sponsored product to figure out how to do that. You can you can direct deposit two paychecks. You can take your paycheck and say, I want to put 10% into this account and 90% into this. Boom, problem solved. Well, let's see if this solved the issue. Launched in 2017, Oregon Saves is the first state-sponsored program to provide an automatic enrollment retirement savings mechanism for private sector employees. According to the paper, more than 67,700 participants accumulated over $51 million through April 2020. Average account balance, $754. Doesn't sound like they saved a ton of money, but this piece also shows that they targeted low-income employees. The research found the majority of participating employees, they have a default rate of 5%. So if you don't specify how much you're going to save into this plan, people are going to save 5%. Guess what percentage people saved? Well, it's probably less than 5%, considering some people will have been smart enough to opt out. But why is opting out smart? Because it's not solving the problem. We're just creating another, so another mechanism for, for confusion. So what you're saying is, is that you can set up a plan by yourself, and that'll be fine. But then my employer goes to this Oregon Save Things, and you're saying it's... This it's, is a it's, solution in search of a problem. But you're saying it's better to opt out of this when it is the automatic thing that you're advocating for that's put on your doorstep. It's a solution in search of a problem. So why do I opt out? Hey, hey, listen, we got this thing set up at work. It's called a 401k plan. Oh, you should opt out on that. You know why? Because of the fact that your employer set this thing up. You should probably. I'm saying that that it's not necessary because you can already do it. So what you were talking about, whether or not this was a good idea to begin with. If the employer is using. Yeah, but you said people are smart enough to opt out. Why would I want to opt out of this plan if it's delivered to my doorstep and I have the ability to save when I didn't have that delivered to my front door before? Why am I going to opt out and do something that's harder? Okay, touche. Don't know anything about it. The authors also talk about, and, and, and this is directly to your point, they talk about search costs. And search costs is the fact that while searching for the appropriate plan, the vast majority of people get confused and get lost in the myriad of options that are available. And instead having a carte blanche look at, hey, you can automatically put money into this plan. Your money goes directly to savings. If you do nothing, you'll save 5%, which is, by the way, what the answer was. People save exactly what was mandated, which doesn't surprise me at all, right? I mean, hey, I'll go ahead and sign up for this thing. If the default option is cash, people used to save into cash. Now the default option in a lot of plans, as you know, is a target date fund. Which is what this is, by the way. And guess where people save now? God awful people save into funds. target date funds. And by the way, people that save 6 or 7%, it's almost entirely driven by automatic escalation that happens inside the plan. So you'll automatically save more and more money as you go. But it's amazing, this idea that uh, if we hide money from ourselves, it seems to work. Okay, and you will die broke. So the number is way higher than 5%, and please don't use a target date fund. Get your own Roth IRA. You don't need to use organs. What do you mean by, by the number's way higher than that? 
Well, I mean, I suppose it could be 5% if you start when you're, you know, 10. If so why so so here's my point with all of this. If, if we're going to if we're going to have the state say, "Okay, we're going to mandate this, we're going to put this in place, you know, because people aren't taking care of their own or their own situation." Okay, fine. Then why not make it 20%? Why don't we just have to save 20% into the account? Yeah, I don't understand 5% either. I don't get I don't get where 5%. I mean, so if you're going to take control of it, then take freaking control of it. You know what I mean? Don't half ass it and say like, "Oh, we're going to make you do 5% into a Roth IRA that we created for you. And uh, here's a shitty target date fund that you can use. And that's it. You can have the S&P fund, a target date fund, or money market. To your point, you're going to opt into the target date fund because, you know, what other choices are there? Those are your three. What about small cap or what about international? What the hell with that? We don't have to, we don't have to put that much work into it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we have to put some work into it. So much work that we have accumulated a Grand total of $51 million on an average of $700 a person. So, you know, obviously was important to do. So why, why not do the whole thing? Well, so here's, but here's the other side of that question. If the average balance is $760, riddle me this, how much savings would these people have had if they didn't have that plan? These same people. Cause I think I know what that number is. Zero. Zero. They wouldn't have saved anything. Is $768 going to make a hill of beans difference 25 years from now? It's better than not having $760. It's not going to make a hill of beans difference. It's a rounding error. It's not even close. Plus, since it's a Roth, you can take the money out. So they're going to take the money out anyway. There's no restrictions. At least the 401k, there's like an obstacle of like, you got to have a loan or you you call up the 401k people and you say, hey, I want to take money out. They go... Sorry, you already took money out like two years ago. You have a loan. Here's and another. You can't- here's another interesting statistic: the people that were best at this, the participants that appear to be best on it, based on the data that they have here, were people that were introduced to it two or three times. Meaning, people that first tried to save were unsuccessful. People that saw it a second time and went back in after touching the stove and realizing that they weren't good at it did better. People that saw it for a third time were better. So while $760 might not make a difference, OG, the fact that these people finally have a savings plan and they're saving into it seems to be that the education that they got. So education is the issue, not the, not the tool. The tool is the education. The fact that you actually did it is the education. Okay. You just like get me riled up. I do. I'm done falling for it. This is dog crap. Do your own stuff. That's all there is to it. It worked, Joe, just like we planned. <laughs> I know. I know. And OG- I'm just on this website, by the way. So this is how obscenely ridiculous this is. Let me ask you this question. Maybe if you don't, if you already know the answer, you can't play the game. What would you think would be the group that requires the most assistance relative to employer and employee size? Do you think it's the employer that has 100 employees or the employer that has four employees? Four. Okay. So this program launched- several years ago, as you mentioned. In November of 2017 is when they opened it up to employers that had over 100 employees. In 2018, for employees that had between 50 and 99. In 2019, 20 to 49. In 20, later 2019, 10 to 19. Later in 2019, 5 to 9. Targeted for late 2022, employers with four or fewer. Do you think that's administration issues? I think that it's the problem Just- it's... Like the company that has 100 employees should already have a freaking 401k. That's the problem. The problem is, is that 
the guy who runs the company that has 100 employees should have already set this up. And frankly, probably has for himself, you know, because... Greedy business owners. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I would agree with you. The, the problem for this was the people who have a few employees where it's less cost effective, right? It's very difficult to set up a 401k plan for four people. It's cost prohibitive, or it used to be. There's companies out there that now that do it for $8 a month. So that's not an issue anymore anyway. But beside the point, if you're trying to solve this problem, logically you go, well, who has the bigger problem? Well, employers that have like just, you know, a few employees. Yeah, let's do them last. <laughs> Jane Bryant. This sounds like a gigantic marketing scheme by whoever the fund manager is who knocked on the doors of 50 state houses of representatives and finally got one to go, yeah, we'll figure it. Yeah, we'll do it. And they go, cha-ching, we raised $50 million. Hey, good news, Earl. Oregon said yes. Oregon's in. Time to get that commission. Tip of the iceberg. In and out burgers on me tonight. It's pretty much all they got out of the deal, too, probably. Here's the thing. You cannot wait. For someone else to solve the problem for you. You know, it, Social Security doesn't solve the problem. We already have a program like this. It's called Social Security. Guess what we figured out? Not enough money. So what do you have to do? You have to do something. You. You don't have to like sit there and like twiddle your thumbs and go like, well, yeah, I would love to do something, but it's too complicated to set up two direct deposits. You know, you have to own it. When you dive into any success that this program had, it's specifically what you're talking about. Not you owning it, but hiding money from yourself. Hiding money from yourself is the key to getting money saved. And it's interesting. While I was researching ways to uh, ways to poke your hot button, I actually came up with uh, she said. this article written by Jane Bryant Quinn for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And it's from 2012, OG, but this still holds true. Jane talks about how she was able to set up her own retirement plan successfully by hiding money from herself. She said the number one thing for you to do on your own is to start a retirement account, because if you have a retirement account at work, you can put money aside. If you don't, setting up an IRA and having money automatically go there. Number two, start a savings account, but keep that separate from your checking account. And she talks about how if you just give yourself that little moment where you have to think about it before you transfer money from saving to checking. That's great. I even went as far when I was a financial planner at setting up a savings account at a whole different bank. Like, let's just put it someplace else and take away the card access. And for people that couldn't save, all of a sudden they were beginning to save. Third on her list, claim zero exemptions on your income tax withholding form. Oh boy. Nope. Let the government do it for you so you get a big old check. Well, first of all, you don't do that anymore. The W-4 is... You don't get to do that anymore. Well, so. th- that's where 2012 strikes yeah. on that one. Uh, but num- don't let the government be your savings vehicle. That's ridiculous. Four, save all found money, gifts, bonuses, and checks from side jobs. Save all, all that money. Five, if your income's irregular, put 10% of every paycheck into savings at the very least. Hide money from yourself. You need to hide money from you. I need to talk to you about your... <laughs> Stacking Benjamins. Where did that come from? Credit card usage. Can we go back to found money? This is a thing. Where do I look for this stuff? Gene pockets. Hmm. Yes. Okay. Probably yes. Joe's. <laughs> I find money every time I'm over at, at Joe's house. It's, I go through his wallet. There's all sorts of money in there usually. I'm like, ooh, look at all this found money. Coming up next, Jared Bibbler is a gentleman who worked in Iceland for the banking industry and got out just before 
all of a sudden this bad stuff started happening. So you could say that he, he might've caused it maybe and then, and then pointed the finger. And actually that's not it at all. Jared actually moved over to the regulatory side and was one of the people that were diving into this situation in Iceland where the banking industry nearly, nearly brought down the entire Icelandic economy. We got Jared coming up next with our friend, Doc G doing the interview. Uh, Doc G, the fabulous interviewer from our sister show, Earn and Invest, is going to join us here in a few minutes. But first, I think, uh, I think well, Doug, uh, settling up, man, you might have something for us, huh? Let's go. Hey there, stackers. Remember me from like 20 minutes ago? I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Today is Work Harder Day, a holiday celebrated year-round by the adult entertainment industry. Are we really working harder than ever? According to OurWorldData.org, we've been studying working hours for 150 years. So my question is, has the number of hours we work on average increased or decreased over that last century and a half? I'll be right back with the answer after I finish reading the last page of The Jungle. Hey, Staggers, it's Military Appreciation Month. You know what that means. We are recognizing all of our stackers in the audience. My good friend, Nords, Doug Nordman, who uh, some of you may know, he is a writer in personal finance. He's a guy I'd like to do a shout out to. He is such a giving member of the FIRE community, the Financial Independence Retire Early community. Uh, Nords will do anything for you. It's just, just, I think some of that comes from his time on a submarine, like my nephew Colin, who's on a submarine right now, and all the work that uh, he did there. Just a super giving member of the community. And you know what? A Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond, not this month, but every month. Navy Federal offers members only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Here's one of their offers in honor of Military Appreciation Month. Join and get $50 when you open a credit card. Of course, you want to have your whole debt strategy planned out, don't you? Don't just go open a credit card willy-nilly, as mom says. Uh, here's a disclaimer. You got to join, open your membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. So get on it stackers. Annual percentage yield is a 0.25% for membership savings account, $5 minimum balance to open, maintain your membership savings account to obtain the bonus. Visit navyfederal.org for full terms and conditions. That's just one of the things they have a 24 seven help for their us based service members. They have resources all over the place. Head to Navy federal org for full terms, conditions, and other offers. Navy and Federal is insured by NCUA Equal Housing Lender. Well, if you're new to Stacking Benjamins, you may not know that I've tried out a lot of personal finance apps. I like to be a guinea pig and try out all these things so I know what I'm talking about when it comes to uh, what's helpful and what isn't helpful. And the app that I've used the longest has been Monarch Money, and it's because Cheryl and I, my spouse, were able to collaborate together we can work on our goals together and our budget and our goals are right next to each other on the app. It is clearly the next generation of personal finance apps. So what is it? Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, because you're a stacker, you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash benjamins. I love the fact that we get to collaborate. I love the fact that it's customizable. 
And I also love that it's this ad-free privacy you can trust. They never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch myself, I totally get why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, because you're a stacker, you're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because, well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. stackers i'm work harder not smarter proselytizer and basement sweatshop master joe's mom's neighbor doug so here was our trivia question are we working longer or shorter hours than 150 years ago turns out things were not great back in the day while it might feel like you're on all the time we're actually working fewer hours each day fewer days each week and fewer weeks each year except me because baby i'm always hustling Back in 1870, workers in most of the measured countries toiled for more than 3,000 hours annually. That means a grueling 60 to 70 hours each week for 50 weeks a year. And I have it on good authority that there were no workplace ping pong tables or slushy machines, which I'm sure made working conditions absolutely intolerable. While we might not be working the long ping pong table hours of our ancestors, we still want to hold on to our Benjamins. So let's dive into a tale so true that it sounds like fiction about the world's biggest con with Jared Bibbler. Coming down to the basement is our new friend and author of Iceland's Secret, the untold story of the world's biggest con, Jared Bibbler. Welcome to the Stacking Benjamin Show. Thanks so much, Doc G, for having me down to the basement. I'm excited to have you here. This is a whale of a story, but I think to get people on board with where we stand, I want to ask, in terms of scale, talk about the disastrous effect of the Great Recession on the U.S. stock market versus what happened in the Icelandic market at the end of 2008. So the U.S. market, of course, everybody remembers that. I think a lot of your listeners lived through it. I think the U.S. market went down around half through that crisis, if, if I'm not mistaken, something around that. Also the same for the other big markets like Germany. But in Iceland, the market went down by 97%. So effectively, it went down to, to zero uh, in a very short time. Yeah. And this is a big deal for any market. But up to this point, people had thought that in Iceland, you couldn't do wrong. This was like a really strong market. At least everyone thought it was up to this point. Yeah, there was a lot of foreign interest, uh, maybe not so much in the market, but also in, in buying and putting money. Like even Japanese housewives could put money in Iceland via these Japanese savings vehicles to earn a higher interest. So yeah, there was a lot of money and a lot of perception that Iceland was clean, you know, a pure land of the north, if you will. I want to get down to the details of how exactly this happened. But before we do, let's talk about you a little bit. You were born in the U.S. How did you end up in Iceland in the first place? I was born in the U.S. And for the five years before I moved there, I was working on Wall Street. So I built uh, some of the back office software for one of the biggest banks. I was actually in on the ground floor of the mortgage boom. And I remember the early years of that in on Wall Street. This was a big project. And I was working weekends and, and long weeks for like five years. I was getting burned out. I stumbled onto an opportunity in Iceland to do something similar but in a, in a much more chilled out atmosphere. And I thought, 
I can always get hired back in New York. Why don't I try this? Why don't I go there? And I loved it. So I was initially going to go there for a year and see how I liked it. And I kind of never looked back. But then, as you see in the book, a few years later, lost everything or almost everything when the crash came. Was Iceland already on your radar or was it this job opportunity that really made you turn to that country? I was visiting a friend in Sweden and I was flying on Iceland Air and I flew back through Iceland. I think it was in May 2002 and I just loved it. I was like, oh, this is a, this is a cool place. I would like to come back here. I went back as a tourist a few more times. It's very close to Boston. It's about, depending on the winds, you can get there even in four hours sometimes if you have a strong tailwind. So you can go there for the weekend from Boston, at least. Um, and so I did that a bunch of times. And that's how I stumbled into uh, this job opportunity. Tell us about this job. And then eventually you had a job with one of the major banks right before the crash of 2008. Yeah. So the first job was a pretty standard IT job. I used to be a programmer and business analyst. We were rolling out back office and asset management software for these Icelandic banks. These banks were already growing just by leaps and bounds. I think they were virtually doubling their balance sheet size every year for those few years. All the action was there and everybody with a little bit of ambition in Iceland eventually got, got sucked into the banks, including me. So I was thinking, why am I writing asset management software when they need asset managers? And they were hiring even like fishermen to be currency traders. So I was like, mm -hmm. well, with my background, I can, I can go in there and run money. And, and they were happy to have me. So in beginning of 2007, I moved over to, to the oldest bank in Iceland in their asset management department. And I was running, um, it was a very cool job, especially at first. We were putting together a fund of hedge fund products, private equity funds of funds, and also real estate investment vehicles. And our biggest clients were the pensions in Iceland. So the retirement system, which is quite, quite well funded there. So there's a lot of money to, to, be, to be put into those type of products. I noticed that you said originally it was quite cool a job, but eventually you left it. Why? Yeah, the first year or so was really cool to, uh, for me to be able to put together, uh, to write screening algorithms and to write uh, screening tools to look at all the hedge funds in the world and, and select the most promising, and then to call up people. Uh, we had a partner in one of the big banks uh, who knew all the hedge, this guy was like an idiot savant of hedge funds. You could ask him any fund and he would tell you the piece. So this was really fun to put together dossiers on hedge funds, to find the best ones, to work with our partners, and then to go actually go physically visit them and interview them, to be the person with the money to deploy and to say, you know, the way these guys talk, it, it was crazy. I was at a private equity conference in 2007, I think, or early 2008. And people talk, yeah, we'll, we'll do one, we'll do two, we'll do five. And, and they mean million, right? It's, you know, yeah, we're looking to do about five. So it was, it was cool to be on that side and to, and actually I'm proud of the funds that we chose in the hedge fund product. It was quite a good product. Um, that, was, that was really cool. But I started to lose sleep, especially early 2008 and through that year. There was a lot of funny business going on uh, in that asset management department. Some of this is in the book. Things like... If they wanted a big pension fund to come in, they'd say, we'll let you in at last month's price, that type of thing, because they didn't have an external administrator, which is best practice. You, you shouldn't be running the administration of the fund and the money and, you know, but they were kind of, everything was in-house, back office too, everything. And so the sales guys would say, hey, we'll bring you in, you know, you're going to get 5% return in the first month guaranteed because we're bringing you in at last month's price and the fund is up 5%. Well, 
that's great for that guy. But for all the other investors who are already in the fund, they lose that amount of cash. It's, you know, it's a zero sum game. And that stuff and the ease with, with which those type of things were done in the in that department really was bothering me. And I, I lost more and more sleep through 2008. And I finally, finally left. Uh, I think my last day was Friday, the 3rd of October, which doesn't mean much to you. But that's the Friday before all the Icelandic banks collapsed the following week. So the three banks collapsed in four days. So I got out like just just in time. When you were having these ethical quandaries, did you have any idea that this was more of a systemic problem? I mean, you were at one of the top three banks in Iceland, and you had mentioned in the book that when it, it came to the Icelandic stock market, those three banks made up most of the shares out there in the stock market yeah. in Iceland. Yeah, the, the market cap of the three banks, they were the exchange. I mean, they were, I think, 75% of the of the value of, of the main exchange index by the 2008. And plus there were a couple of other companies that were closely tied to them. So when they went down, I mean, that's, that's why the market went down 97% because more or less the market had been, everybody else had been crowded out. I mean, there were other things going on in Iceland. There was a, there was some high-tech manufacturing in terms of prosthetics. There was a prosthetics company and there were some fishing companies and so on. But by 2008, those had all been pushed to the margins because the banks had grown so that they were 11 times bigger than the than the country's economy. They were each around the size of Enron. I know now everyone's talking about Enron again because it's 20 years. I mean, Enron was a huge story in the US. And their balance sheet was like something around $65 billion, I think, when they collapsed. The biggest Icelandic bank when it collapsed, I believe, was $82 billion. And the other ones were a little bit smaller than Enron. So the three of them together on average is almost three Enron collapses. Wow. And, and so to get the timeline straight, it's 2008. You leave your job at the bank because ethically you thought some of the things going on were questionable. A week later, all those banks collapse. In fact, the Icelandic economy collapses. We're going to get into the why in a moment, but I just want to give a little more perspective. Describe what it was like to be an average Icelandic citizen at the beginning of 2009 economically. And how did you feel? You had just left your job. How were your finances? What kind of pain were people going through? Oh, I mean, winter in Iceland is dark anyway. You have three months of almost no light. So the collapse took place in October. And then really November, December, January are just super dark months. And, and things were very uncertain. I can't overstate the level to which... And so we, we, we weren't living in the, I didn't know how things were in the US or other places, but it was hand to mouth really for a few months. I mean, I had a few months of pay coming in from the bank, but also the prices of everything had shot through the roof. Iceland always had high inflation, but this was like the currency lost most of its value also, or half of its value very quickly. So that meant anything imported would, would cost double what it had cost. When you're in that situation, you don't know you know, the, let's say the price of food this month is 10% more than last month. That's scary. And you don't know how long that's going to continue. And we didn't have access to a lot of our savings. So we were kind of just piecing together our economic life on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, we eventually lost our house and we had an old car, so we didn't lose our car, but a lot of our friends lost their house and their car. And of course, the pensions that people thought they had, had been invested in those banks and those bank shares. A lot of the pensions were invested in the equity market. And so those had taken a huge hit. It was a dark time. 
the UK had listed Iceland as a terrorist organization, the whole country, in a punitive action. And that had the effect. They did that in order to freeze payments. So also, and everybody, if the UK puts you on a sanctions list, everybody follows this in the world. So this meant if you're a fishing company exporting fish, frozen fish in Iceland, suddenly you're not getting paid. You know, someone owes you for that and the, the, the wire doesn't come through. So those months were were really dark. At the time we were living through them, it felt like that was how it might be for years. It was a very scary experience. Yeah, in the book, you describe a pretty grueling six months of being unemployed, even going as far as buying horse meat because that was the cheapest thing you could find as a protein source. At some point, you do get a job six months later. Tell me about that job you took and what it entailed. I had right away written to the FME, that's the financial regulator of Iceland, as the crash was unfolding. And I said, you know, maybe they could use me because I have a lot of experience and I have outside Iceland experience. And I didn't hear anything from them, but months later they they wrote and they said, you know, you could apply for this position. And the position was an investigator of the crisis. Initially, I think they budgeted only one person. They ended up liking me and another guy equally. So they hired us both. I believe they had almost 200 applicants for that. So they had their pick. I think they took me because I was, I could speak Icelandic by then well enough to, to do the job. And I was an outsider and I think they liked that. And I had different experience from outside the country. That was a dream job. And when I, when I kicked it off, I was just alone in an office. I mean, they just brought me in and they're like, here's your desk. It was a nice desk uh, in a little cubicle with a couple of computer monitors and a phone. And they were like, here you go, go investigate the crisis. <laughs> I didn't know where to begin. And then kind of like a, a gift came this letter from the stock exchange. And this was the cases that I described the most also in the book. My first investigation and the biggest one was based on this tip-off from the exchange. They had found that in the last few days of trading before the collapse, all three banks had a trader at each one, a single man, who had bought virtually all the shares that came across the stock market for those just three days. And they wanted to raise this to the regulator. And I said, wow, this is crazy. You know, this is, this is market manip manipulation. I mean, they never announced this. This is not a share buyback. I didn't know that they did this. And at that time, that was the panic of October. People were looking at those shares for a sense of comfort and seeing that the bank's shares, this was after the Lehman collapse in the US and everywhere in the world, financial markets were in turmoil. And the Icelandic banks, they seemed to be holding. And then of course the crash came and they dropped to zero those shares. So, so it's like, wow, they, they really thought they could do this for three days and like nobody would see. But I wanted to make sure that it was just three days. So I, I got through to the stock exchange and I asked them, hey, can you send me like a week's trade? I don't remember, it was like a week or 10 days of trading data. Cause I wanted to see how the pattern developed and do a more thorough investigation. And when they sent me the 10 days, it was the same as the three days. So this had been going on for longer. And then I went back like, I think like a month. So I went back into September, 2008. So that was the last month. And I saw that even before Lehman collapse, each of the banks had a trader buying most of the volume on the market. And so then I went back, I thought, okay, okay, now I'm gonna get it. Now I'm gonna find the beginning. I'll go back six months. I'll go back to, I think I went back to April or May, 2008. Now I'm gonna get it. This is gonna be it. I'm gonna see how this started. Because I wanted to know like, well, which bank started this first? And did they, you know, how did this thing unfold? So I went back 
to the earlier in 2008, and it was the same story for all of those months. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to have to go big here, so I'll just get five years. And then we actually found that uh, this had been going on since the summer of 2004. So virtually all the years I'd been living there, I moved there in 2004, all the years that, I mean, people talked about the stock market. That was the talk. If you went to someone's house for a barbecue or, or an Easter dinner or something, people talked about the market because in those years, the market was going up 50, 60% a year during the bubble years. People are feeling rich and prosperous and, oh, how, how much do you think the banks are going to go up this, you know, I think they can close above this before the end, you know, that kind of, that was what the country talked about for years. And to realize that the banks had been more or less setting the share price, their own share price for for that time was really, well, first of all, I didn't believe it, you know, but when I figured out that it was true, it was like a gut punch. It was like, you've been living in a lie for, you know, five years. I've since found out as I did the research to close the book this year, that it went back to 1998, as you saw in the book, probably in chapter 14, the trader for Lundsbanki the head of the prop desk and one of the traders, they were charged with this. And when they were in court, these guys had taken over those positions in 2003. And when they were in court, one of their defenses was, well, when we came in, the bank had been doing this since 1998. <laughs> so this was standard operating procedure, you know, this is unbe still unbelievable to me. So from what I can tell, obviously there was lots of graft and corruption going on, but one of the major schemes is what we're talking about right now. The banks were basically buying back all their own stocks, not reporting it, propping up the stock price, and eventually they're funding it into loans to private businesses, et cetera, that actually made their book of loans look better too. Yeah. So it looked like they were doing more business. This had been something that was going on for at least a decade or close to it. Why did the dominoes eventually fall? Like, why hadn't they, why didn't this happen in 2004, 2006? Why 2008? There was a crisis in 2006 where foreign analysts, including the IMF, but before that, some analysts from Danske Bank in Denmark and also Merrill Lynch, and I think there was one other, these credit analysts, you know, as they do, they did reports on the Icelandic banks and the Icelandic financial sector. And they asked the right questions and they said kind of like, how are these banks, we don't, we don't understand the quality of their loan books. There's a lot of cross shareholding. And the main thing was that these banks financed their rapid growth on the wholesale markets. If you're, maybe for your listeners who don't know, there's, there's, you can finance a bank with deposits, which is where you, you know, someone comes in and deposits money. Now you have more money that you can lend, or you can, you can issue bonds, you can issue debt on the wholesale debt markets, and you can grow the bank that way. These were basic or largely financed on the wholesale markets, which means that you need to keep rolling that debt. When that debt comes due, you need to roll it. And in 2006, these analysts pointed out, hey, Iceland has to roll, can't, I can't remember the numbers, it was, it was in the billions of dollars, these banks need to roll billions of dollars in debt in the next 12 months. And the GDP of Iceland is only like $15 billion. And these banks have, have to roll half of this in debt, you know, are they going to be able to do it and so on. So they asked the right questions. And that precipitated what I would term the real crisis. It's called the mini crisis, 2006. So that the stock market dropped immediately about 20%. And the Icelandic krona, the currency dropped 20%. And that was the wake up call. That should have been the, the time to take stock. But everyone in the country, including the president at the time, were just so gung ho for these banks to succeed. And the banks were able to 
instead of borrowing on the European debt markets, they started to borrow in New York. They started to get U.S. pension funds, Canadian pension funds to invest. Then they went to Japan and they issued samurai bonds and they went to Mexico and, you know, further afield. And they also started opening up savings accounts in Europe on online platforms and taking retail money to, to keep the party going. I have a quote from one executive uh, in the biggest bank. He says now that the bank was already insolvent in 2005 and, and maybe before. And the final nail in the coffin was the collapse of Lehman. It was the U.S. crisis finally made it such that you know the, the world markets froze, and then they even the little bit of credit that they had left that was frozen, and that brought the party to an end finally. But the party should have ended years before. So you come in, you are an outsider, and you already kind of talked a little bit about this culture in Iceland of it was kind of the go-go early 2000s and everything was going up and couldn't fail. As you were investigating, did you find that there was doubt about the guilt of the parties that you were investigating? And how did the culture of Iceland in general play into your investigations? Um, yeah. yeah, well, I love to investigate things. I thought this was just very cool chance to do a good project because also at this time the public was just spitting mad i mean people were in the streets every day in front of the parliament for that whole first winter just you know people had lost their houses and their jobs and felt like they had been lied to by these financiers and by the government and they were really angry so i had that behind me i had that um, that support or that i felt like there was a public mandate to really do a good investigation to really find out what happened and and if we could, to make a, a criminal case, the public was demanding blood at that point. So I felt good on that side. And I was surprised when, for example, uh, my boss at FME, as soon as I had investigated the, the biggest bank type thing and their, and their prop traders, she said, well, okay, uh, you can close the books on that one now, Jared. You know, um, we can go on to the next case. And I was like, yeah, but don't we need to find out who's involved? I mean... Because to do this manipulation was expensive. It cost um, around a billion US dollars just in 2008 for the biggest bank to buy its own shares. Just in Iceland. They were also doing it in, in Sweden. And the other two banks spent about the same. They all had to kind of keep, keep together. Nobody could let their shares fall faster than someone else, for example. So, so I knew this had to be a bigger story. And I remember her saying something like, you have, you have one week if you want to find someone higher up in the bank Otherwise, we need to close this case down and send it on. So I was surprised at that. And that, that kind of pushback continued. My only salvation was that the cases were so big, it was like they couldn't be ignored. You know, I mean, they're just, they were so blatant. But even people around me at the regulator, even, it was pretty secret, this work. It wasn't, I couldn't even talk to people on other teams. But even the people around me who did know, some of them were kind of like, what's the big deal, Jared? I mean, this is just normal, you know? <laughs> it's like, it's not normal. <laughs> Wouldn't you have wanted to know that these guys bought their shares every day? Wouldn't that have made a difference in how you thought about the bank? So that there was a, quite a pushback inside the regulator. Ultimately, you found wrongdoing in the banking system, some political figures, certainly some business and entrepreneurs. Ultimately, was justice served out? Do you feel like the criminal law system dealt with them the way they should have in Iceland? That's a really good question, and I, I don't have a clean answer for you. On the one hand, I'm very proud that we were able to make those cases. Um, th the cases that we did were so 
actually these share manipulation cases, once we figured out what was happening, they were easy to make those cases. The evidence was was fantastic in the emails that people would send to each other and in the trades themselves. So those cases were easy to make. I'm proud and happy that we did that. The penalties suffered by, for example, the CEOs ultimately were very few months in jail and then they were out on ankle bracelets and so on, but they were able to be back in society, they were able to work and then so on. The other thing that bothers me more than that, I mean, for me it was about getting the truth out. I'm not someone who's like, oh, they should rot in jail or something, but it was more like, I want people to know how they were deceived. And the part that still bothers me today is that our investigations were pretty much shut down in the end of 2011. And there was much, much more to go. Um, there were many, many more insider trading cases, and there were many more institutions that we didn't really even crack open. Some of these executives from the big banks who were prosecuted, they feel like they were singled out. And there's something to that, because there were many more people involved, including politicians, including people in the central bank. It was a systemic problem. And there were laws broken, I'm sure, in those other areas, which there were investigations that were just never done. And so disproportionately, the microscope was on a few people, and, and especially Kuip thing, the biggest bank. And I can see how they feel. But look, hey, they did terrible crimes. So I'm not going to defend them too much. But I can see how they feel put upon because they existed in an ecosystem of a lot of corruption uh, supported from the highest levels of the government. And that reckoning has not happened there. And it's not happened anywhere else. Let's broaden that conversation a little bit. This story obviously wasn't just written for the Icelandic people, right? This many people outside of Iceland are going to read this. What are some of the biggest takeaways, especially to people like me or most of this audience? A lot of us live in the United States or Canada, maybe in Europe. Why is this important to us? Well, I'll give you some recent quotes from people who've read the book. Someone I know here in Switzerland, you know, that's a big fi financial asset management capital for the world who's senior at one of the biggest Swiss banks, said to me that I wasn't really writing uh, about Iceland at all, that I was writing about Switzerland. He said, this sounds very familiar, Jared, very familiar. I think if you look at the incentives that we give our regulators and our compliance people and then this side of things, they're not conducive to rooting out financial crime. And even to talk about financial crime happening in banks, people were talking about it after 2008, but that's kind of gone away now. To even talk about that is kind of like, ooh, ooh what, are you, what are you saying, Jared? Like, but look, I mean, we know that there's criminals in every walk of society, but this is a place where if you want to do big crimes, probably the biggest crimes, you can pretty much do them, make the money and not be punished. Because on the, on the regulatory side, just look at my own example. I was not rewarded for, for bringing in some of these billion-dollar cases of market abuse. In the end, my team was taken away, and I, was, I ended up leaving the country. And that, that's not just me. That's kind of how it is. If you want to be a good regulator today, you have to be someone who checks boxes, and probably you have to bring in some cases. You have to do some showpieces to show that you're doing something. But if you look at, for example, what the SEC does in the US, if you look at their press releases, a lot of them are small time things that they bring in. So they have a lot of press releases. They, they're very busy, but there's no tiger team inside the regulator waiting or looking for the biggest stuff to take down because th there's no incentive for them. On the other side, 
if you're a bank CEO or even just an inside trader, there's a great incentives to cut corners and so on because you're going to walk away with money. And there's nothing like that on the other side. So I think, especially someone like you who's read the book, I think it, it becomes easier to imagine that what happened there is happening in some form in whatever country that you're sitting in. I was about to say, do you think that could happen? I mean, a lot of us have quite a bit of assets in equities or retirement funds, et cetera. Could you see something like Iceland ever happening in somewhere like the United States? Yeah, although probably not so simplistically. I mean, this was so easy. Just have one, <laughs> imagine one guy in each firm buying up the firm's shares and never telling anybody. I don't think it's that simple, unfortunately. I think in a much bigger, more complex market like the U.S., this is more like an allegory for what might be happening. But yes, I do think there's a risk of of a really big collapse, something that makes 2008 look like the preview. After the First World War, they called it the Great War. It's like we call it the global financial crisis. Or you, I think in the US, you call it the Great Recession, right? Yep. But that could be like the first Great Recession, you know? <laughs> there could be the second. And I kind of feel unfortunately like if we, if we don't get our act together uh, we ha we changed some good things from 2008 but in terms of like bank capital ratios and capital adequacy and stuff that's better than it was but we haven't put in these tiger teams or go, who go after financial crime in fact the fallout from Enron made it harder in the US to prosecute financial crime so there was a famous DOJ memo in the mid 2000s i want to say 2006 because they went really hard after Enron, and then um, some of their investigations, part of the fallout was that Arthur Anderson, used to be the big five accounting firms, Arthur Anderson was basically bankrupted by the reputational risk, which I think is a good thing, right? There should be a consequence for firms that go that far. But the DOJ didn't agree. They said, we, we need to be careful when lots of livelihoods are, are at stake. We need to be careful with prosecutions that would affect people who... Because obviously there were good people at Anderson who had nothing to do with Enron and who lost their jobs. So they said, we need to be careful. So that was kind of the death knell. That that set up so that when Obama came in, he was like, yeah, let's not, let's not go too hard after Wall Street because we don't know what the consequences will be. The book is Iceland's Secret, the untold story of the world's biggest con. Jared, the book is already out. Where can we find it? I mean, it's everywhere good books are sold, like they say. Uh, Amazon has it, Barnes & Noble, and, uh, and so on. Well, Jared Bibler, thanks for coming down to the basement. Don't forget to grab one of Joe's mom's brownies on the way out. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Mitchell Walker, and when I'm not teaching people how to find hidden money, I'm out stacking Benjamins. Big thanks to Doc G and to, to Jared. You know, OG, that uh, while we probably won't be involved in a con where we bring down the economy. No, not probably. We it, definitely won't be involved. <laughs> we, we definitely will. Wait a minute. So That's you're our, saying there's a chance. <laughs> Let's not rule it out. We start off with a little podcast and then slowly. <laughs> but we're, there are people scamming people all over the place. Right now, I got friended on Facebook and immediately after I accepted the friend request uh, by an 88-year-old friend of one of my relatives, she friended me on Facebook and then immediately told me that uh, I said, hey, Linda, how do we know each other? Full well knowing it wasn't Linda. You're such an internet sleuth.
Well, I'm not <laughs> <Wow>. sharp <laughs> as a tack, are I'm you, Joe? A- Internet security is your side hustle, I can tell. <laughs> it's where all that time reading the Hardy Boys got me. I know. Yes, because friend Chet would never do that to the Hardy Boys. Uh, and Linda would never do this to me. Would never want to friend me again. But I said- uh, Ooh, This sounds juicy. I said, hey, Linda. She doesn't want to friend you again? What? Again? Yeah. How did you get unfriended the first, the first time? time? Was a, <laughs> first time was a total disaster. We don't want to tell that story. That's for another day. But I said, hey, Linda, how do we know each other? And Lin, quote, Linda, in air quotes, okay. wrote me back and said- well, I don't know because I just had some brain trauma. Uh, that happens at 88. And I'm trying to piece it back together. I'm trying to get my life back together. And with her one and glimmer the- of memory, she remembered Joe. She <laughs> A brief shining moment in her rather tawdry history. And apparently forgot why she was unfriended to begin with. Win-win. <laughs> But it is, you find out, you know, those traumatic things bring up, bring up people's name. And she immediately She's like, goes, and by oh. the way, what's your favorite cat's name? <laughs> Thank you to Doc G and to Jared. And I think we all have to be on the lookout for uh, scammers in our lives. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline, OG, and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. Getting into uh, virtual fist fights on Wednesday morning. Are you going to say Oregon saves? Nope, virtual fist fights. Oh, that's uh, why they made buying quality term life insurance actually simple, so you can spend more time fist fighting. Head to stackybenjamins.com slash havenlife now to get a free quote. If you hit the pause button right now, you get that done. You don't have to worry about it again then and realize then that your family finally is in a good place. Application simple online. You get an instant coverage decision, affordable prices, and they're Policies offered by parent company Mass Mutual, more than 160-year-old insurer. Today, we're going to throw out the lifeline to stacker Deb. Say hi, Deb. Hi, Joe, G, and Doug. I have a question about high-yield savings accounts. I didn't know these accounts existed until you all mentioned them earlier this year. So I immediately opened one. But just recently, my bank announced a significant decrease in their interest rate from 3% to 1%. My partner and I were talking about these accounts, and it turns out we have very different ideas about what to do with this money. So he thinks a high-yield savings account is a good place to put large portions of your money for your future, so a very distant time horizon, whereas I viewed it as a placeholder for a big future purchase like a house. And now with this decrease in interest rates, I'm wondering if I should just put that money into an ETF to then potentially withdraw in a few years when I want to buy a house. I'm interested to hear what you all think of this. Thanks for the podcast. It's always entertaining, even though Doug's the only one I can count to learn anything from. (laughs) She's awesome. Best caller in weeks. Thank you, Deb. And by the way, I feel the, a little pressure here being in the middle of the uh, discussion, as we'll call it OG, between Deb and her significant other. I feel like we're going to be resolving this dispute and it's not going to be good for one of them. Ding, 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 and fight. Here we go. Yeah, we were there a few minutes ago, Deb. Now it's your turn. Look. Because which side are we coming down on? Is it uh, Deb or? First of all, I want to I want to find whatever account she had that was at 3%. Must have been an intro rate or something, I suppose. It it had to be Deb an introductory rate because nobody was paying yeah, three. Yeah. Uh, or what, was it a bank in Iceland, maybe? Oh. Icelandic maybe it bank. was. It was probably the bank of Doug. Yeah. It was probably whatever bank this uh, person pretending to be Linda on Facebook is <laughs> 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 is running. I had brain trauma. Head trauma. <laughs> yes. I know some banks that act like they have brain trauma. Looking at you, Bank of America. 
You're still on that. Wow. 25 years ago, Joe's still mad at Bank of America. <laughs> Too soon? <laughs> the way that you want to think about your money is the time frame that you need it depends on what sort of ups and downs you can tolerate. So if you need the money, if it's your emergency fund and it's there in case your tire blows out or you need a new water heater at the house, you need that money right away. You need it accessible, liquid, so you can't afford to have any ups and downs. Last week, for example, the stock market was up really big on Monday and down really bad on Tuesday and even on Wednesday and you know just kind of bounced all over the place. Well, what happens if you needed the money on Tuesday after it was down a whole bunch? You know, you can't afford that, you know, roller coaster ride early on. So if the money is needed for something early or from a time horizon standpoint, then it has to be safe and secure. So banks a good place, savings bonds, government bonds, you know, whatever, like that sort of stuff is where you want to have that. If you're buying a house in a couple of years, I think cash is a great place to put it. If you don't care when you buy your house, you can invest it, but just recognize that when are you going to want to buy your house? Probably when the house prices go down. And what else is going to go down if house prices go down? Probably your stock account. So you don't want to be like going, dang it, I had all this money set aside for my house, but now the market's down a whole bunch. And now I can buy the house on sale, but I don't have any money because the market went down. So if you've got a short time frame, three to five years, you definitely want to have the money sitting in, in cash or something like cash. Anything that's longer than that, you can afford the ups and downs. You know, what happened in the stock market yesterday makes no difference to anybody who's retiring in 30 years from now. Because if you believe, as I do, that 30 years from now, things will be better, the economy will be stronger, so on and so forth, then that makes it the only logical place to put it. The downside with having your money really safe and secure and a long time horizon, kind of mixing those two things up, is that you have to save too much money. You don't take advantage of any compounding. The benefit of a long time is that your money gets to grow, and then your money makes money. So if you don't have enough interest on your account, then your money's not going to be making enough money. Therefore, you're not going to be compounding it as, as quickly. So you have to save more. doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means that it's very, very, very difficult. Warren Buffett made 95% of his money after he turned 60 because of the fact that you know the compounding works so well over long periods of time. So long-term money, investments, short-term money, cash. So I'm going to call it a draw, and they're both right. How's that? Wow. Did I do good? Yeah. You're both right. Good job. <laughs> hey, honey, OG said we're both right, except I'm more right, and we should invest most of this money long term. <laughs> but I think the key here is uh, to begin with the end of mind, right? I mean, to starting off with a goal, and you'll, you'll know where to go. That will lead the way. Absolutely. Also, can we talk about this 1% interest rate? Because we use the word uh, high yield, and high yield seems to have become a euphemism. Oh, <laughs> it's, OG. It's changed. Yes. It used to mean money, and now it means none. Now it means uh, low, low, low interest, but better than the 0.00 something that you're getting at your bank. Do we transfer any of that? Should you transfer any of that with that one-year minimum hold period over to I-bonds? Well, I mean, you're adding some complexity there. You know, you could. You you can. We talked about this at the end of last year. You can have up to $10,000 a year of purchases per person in government I-bonds. You create an account online and do it, and uh, you get... The rate right, right now is uh, 7%, so you'll get that for the first six months of the year. But um, you could do that. But just remember, you can't touch it. So if you're building your cash reserve, you know that's not a really great place because you know that's money that you can't access, legitimately can't access. Like, there's no way around it for a year. So definitely like kind of a second-tier cash reserve, I would say, but um, not the first tier. 
Thanks for the question, Deb. If you've got a question for us, head to uh, stackingbenjamins.com slash voicemail and OG and I will be happy to tackle your, your question next. And uh, by the way, for being brave, Deb, we're going to uh, have our friend Gertrude send you a code for a Greatest Money Show on Earth Circus uh, t-shirt from our friend Brad at Flying Pork Apparel. Hey, uh, that's going to do it for today. A lot of people to thank. Uh, Doug, you're going to handle that heavy lifting here in a second. But uh, before we take off, thanks everybody for spending your week with us. And if there's somebody who should hear this show, somebody that needs to hear either the story of Iceland or the story about hiding money from yourself, whatever it might be, uh, forward the episode. And if possible, if you could take a second and leave us a review wherever. All right, uh, that's going to do it except for this. OG and his team are taking clients. And if you need to think bigger about your goals in 2022, want to start off the year on the right foot, head to stackybenjamins.com slash OG. And that's the link to his team's calendar so that they can dive into helping you make better decisions next year. All right, that's going to do it for or this today. year. We can do it this year too. You don't have to wait all the way till next year. Yes, all the years. In all the years. All y'all's years. Head to stackybenjamins.com slash OG. All right, Doug, you got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Well, Joe, I'll tell everybody what they should have learned today. First, things have gotten a lot better for us since 1870, except mustaches. Second, you've got to keep an eye on those interest numbers as some wily banks will go from high yield to buy yield. See what I did there? But the big lesson, working harder pays off. When banks try hard, they don't just scam individuals. They can nearly bankrupt an entire country. Hashtag winning. Wow. And before today, I thought Bank of America was the worst. Thanks so much to Jared Bibbler. His book, Iceland's Secret, is available in Iceland and also anywhere you buy books. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, and is created by Joe Salcihat. Our producer is Karen Rapine. The show is written by the brilliant Paulette Perhatch with help from Joe and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. Know how I know how brilliant Paulette is? She wrote the words I'm reading right now. While she's not putting awesome words in my mouth, she helps writers power their work and businesses power their words. See how she can help you at thatwriterpaulette.com. After you listen to our show, check out our show notes page and the 201 Deep Dives, written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. You'll find all things money at the 201, our newsletter, at stackingbenjamins.com slash 201. Once we get all of this goodness bottled up, it goes over to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart, who helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to talk about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is our social media coordinator and room mother in our Facebook group, The Basement. So say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. She and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. To join all The Basement fun with other stackers, type stackingbenjamins.com basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, saying see you next time, folks.
welcome to the after show. We just got done explaining to Doug what happens on the after show. So we might as well do that again. Uh, what happens in the after show stays in the after show. And sometimes we review Doug. Sometimes we review movies, TV shows we're watching. We do that kind of thing on the after show. Hmm. Sounds riveting. Should listen from time to time. Maybe I shouldn't nap during the after show. Apparently you have been for a decade. Oh, gee, you've been watching your honor. You had watched one or two episodes the last time we talked. You further into it now? I think, uh, probably like episode number seven or eight now. So Brian Cranston is a judge and his son gets in trouble with some uh, bad people. Yeah. He gets in a car accident and I don't want to tell too much about it, but basically the kid does what, what a lot of kids might do is he kind of panics when he has this car accident and just this cascading series of decisions, like pulls him further and further and further down this trail of, Oh crap. And every time you think that they're clear of it, something else comes up. So yeah, it's very, very gritty. Hilarity ensues. Not, not hilarity. No. And based on Doug's recommendation, I've uh, DVR every episode of Yellowstone. So when I have six months to sit and watch TV, because apparently there's 40 episodes. (laughs) Well, there's, yeah, there's four seasons now. I I mean, with Yellowstone, I I think it's going to be the show that you, you love to, hate or I don't know about hate, but I mean, it's, it's a love hate relationship for me with Yellowstone because it is amazing to look at. There's a couple of good actors in it. (laughs) That's a stretch, but there's just something really compelling about it that keeps you watching. But you, you know, you're a moderately smart guy. You're going to watch it and right away be able to find plot holes and be like, why was, why were they there? Or why did somebody do that? And, but you're still going to watch the next episode. It's funny because it's a show that when it first came out, it got such middling reviews and man, it, it found an audience and it's kept the audience and pe- more and more people watch it all the time. I keep watching it and yet we keep saying, well, what? that's just a music video scene. Why, why yeah. is that in there? Or also have watched the first two or three episodes of the prequel to that, which is 1883, much better acted and uh, better written, I think. 1983. 1883. 1883. It's like the, what do they call it? There's a name for it. The, the pre-story. It's the... 19, origin story 1983 is the next one is the the the, <laughs> yeah. the, the not the what do they have the prequel and the after everybody's got gold chains on and a little the bit epilogue. more hair the epilogue yeah that's right yeah <laughs> yellowstone cribs edition <laughs> i watched uh episode two of boba fett and um kind of have the same middling review og that you talked about last time Cheryl finds it kind of boring and weird. I think it's pretty good. I've enjoyed the first two episodes, so we're split decision. Episode two, definitely better than episode one. Kind of at a slow beginning. And uh, just began a new one on uh, PBS, Masterpiece Theater, which was uh, uh, David Tennant, who I just love. That guy's such an awesome actor. Loved him in Broadchurch. Um, A lot Mm. of people, of course, liked him as uh, Doctor Who. But he is in a new series, uh, which is uh, Around the World in 80 Days. And I've liked every version of Around the World in 80 Days as I've watched it. And this one, this one seems to be a little grittier. So uh, new spin on a really old tale. So there we go. What we're watching, peeps. Well, Stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout-outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend, O.G., 
who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. 